Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today comes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Here God's word established a principle that there's two conditions, humility and fear of the Lord, that will be rewarded. Those rewards are riches, honor, and life. Humility is that first condition. This is the understanding that our behaving and believing and seeing ourselves as God sees us. It admits that you are a sinner and you and don't have all the answers and without God's help cannot do anything well or right. And the fear of the Lord is that other condition. This is reverently seeking to honor God in all that you do. Such a man does everything possible to obey and to please the Lord and avoids anything to dishonor him and his name. Then follow the three blessings. First is riches. Sometimes there are financial blessings, but there are often other things as well. There are many natural things that are greater than money in the bank. And honor is that second blessing. A humble man who fears the Lord will grow in favor with God and with men. And finally, the third blessing is life. Exactly what these blessings include are not always imaginable or seen. We see this declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Scripture does point out that there is an abundant life, there's a good life, a joyful life, a peaceful life, a productive life, and an extended life, as well as eternal life, as well. Both here and after will be spent with God himself as your friend. Humility and reverent fear of God are foundational to wisdom. So an honest assessment of our words, our actions, our thoughts, and our intentions remind us of our need to confess our own sins. Invite you, if you're willing and able, to kneel where you are while we pray. this morning is Acts 24, and in our text, we find Paul in Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea is on the coast of Israel. It was a, uh, a governmental seat in the province, and it was, uh, he's there because he was sent to the governor by Lysias, the commander in Jerusalem, after he'd been arrested uh, during a mob. And so... Um, the year is about 58 AD, so it would have been uh, 28 years after the crucifixion. Um, Paul, is, uh, Paul is converted. Um, 20, 25, uh, 25, 28 years before, and he, he had a life of ministry already behind him. He's already con- con- he's just concluding his third missionary journey, and, it, and as we've gone through Acts, we saw that Paul started in, in Jerusalem and ended up in Damascus. He took a, a 14-year break in uh, Cilicia, and then uh, he, he was called into the ministry by Barnabas. And uh, we've been following his his track there, and, and and what he's been doing is he's been spreading the gospel, and it keeps going farther out and farther out. So it started out going into Turkey, and then he made it all the way to the 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 to Greece uh, in his second and third missionary journeys. In his third missionary journey, he spent a large chunk of it in Ephesus, and then he goes back to Jerusalem to bring alms. And when he gets there, um. He is, he's encouraged to go prove to the Jewish Christians that he's not an anti-Jew. He, 
He's, he is a Jew, and he's, he's been proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures to both Jew and Gentile alike. But the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were suspicious because they had heard reports that he was not teaching that. So Paul, when he gets there, is encouraged to go to the temple and pay vows for some Jews uh, that had taken vows. And that was a very uh, Jewish thing to do. And he was doing it to prove his Jewishness to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But while he was there, the, the Jews from Asia stirred up a riot. They, they couldn't stand Paul, so they stirred up a riot. And the commander, Lysias, saved Paul from that. And we just concluded a three-week series on how God uses ordinary circumstances and means to provide extraordinary protection. God's working his plan in the world that we live in. And when we look at things, we can always say, well, you can explain it for this reason or for that reason. But God is working his story in it. And, we, and that's really explicit in the text of Acts. And so we just finished this three-week series on the God's extraordinary deliverance by ordinary means. But where that gets us then is Paul is now in Caesarea, having been just uh, saved from a, a plot against his life in Jerusalem. And he's there, and he's, he's there under Felix, who's the governor. Um, so we, we, we start with our text, Acts 24, verse 1, and it starts out with flattery and the reign of evil men. So, Acts 24, verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So these are the people who brought charges against Paul in Jerusalem. Um, and the high priest was among the, the conspirators who were, had, had come up with a plot against Paul's life. And, and those conspirators had made a, a, a wicked vow. They had vowed that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. But God used Paul's nephew and the commander to deliver Paul. And they sent him by night and he went to Caesarea. And now we see five days later Ananias and this slick lawyer, uh, uh, this, this uh, orator, this speaker, a person who was skilled with words to, uh, to, to bring charges against Paul before the governor. And by now I'm sure these the conspirators, if they were staying faithful to their vow to this point, uh, were getting weak, having not drunk or eaten. But God, God mocks his enemies. So, then we, so here we find the high priest, Ananias, and Tertullus, the orator. And, and this is what the text says, verses uh, 2 through 4. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you, Felix, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Now, I've got to say a few words about Felix here and Tertullus. Tertullus is flattering him. It's obvious. Um, we... Um, through you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix. He's flattering Felix. But these words are not true. Felix was not such a great ruler or a great leader. He was a poor leader. He was, he was harsh. He, in fact, um, Josephus, Josephus tells us that he had, uh, he had a slave's mind. He, Josephus is a, is a Jewish historian. Uh, he, he was somebody who was, he was just, he didn't understand authority. He didn't understand power. And under his rule, Israel was not better off. And his rule didn't last very long. In fact, the text is in, in some ways mocking him. Because uh, it starts out right here with all this praise of most noble Felix. And at the end of our te text, at the end of the chapter, Felix gets succeeded by Festus. He doesn't stick it out very long. And in the middle of our text, what we're going to see is that Felix is not decisive. He's not clear. He's not fa faithful. He's not honest. And he's not just. So the text is really setting him up as, as a tool 
So, uh, but that doesn't stop wicked men from using flattery to get their way, or attempt to. Um, so Tertullus comes and he, he lays it on thick. Um, and, then he, and then he brings charges. Um, verses 5 through 9. Well, verses 5 and 6. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Okay, so Tertullus is being really wise here. He understands Felix. And so one thing we know about Rome and Roman rulers is that they hated dissension. They hated fights. They hated mobs. That's when the hammer came down. And so they start out with saying, this man is a plague, a creator of dissension among the Jews throughout the world. That's the first charge. This guy, he's a riot, a rabble rouser, a troublemaker. And so he's, he's trying to make Paul look odious before Felix. The second charge that he brings is that he's a leader of the Nazarenes, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And the third charge is that he tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Now what's interesting about this charge is that this charge frees Felix up to send Paul back to their jurisdiction. They wanted to judge him on the basis of their law, and the specific charge that they brought was that he tried to profane the temple. Well, in Jewish law at that time, Jews did not have the authority to put anybody to death. Pilate was the one who had to sentence Jesus to death. Um, Except for this one thing. They were allowed to protect the holiness of the temple, and that was the one place where they could bring charges of, of death and carry them out against an enemy. So, so they're being very political in their, in, their, in their charges here. So they wanted to judge him according to their law, and they, and they brought charges that are the one charges that are capital charges in that, in that world. Going on, this is, he's, he's trying to explain what their problem is. This is the problem that Tertullus and Ananias have, verses uh, 7 through 9. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So he he says, Lysias is the bad guy here. Lysias is the commander in Jerusalem, and yet everything we've read and all of the history we've read about Lysias is that he's trying to do what the right thing for him to do was. Now, he wasn't a believer, and he did overstep his boundaries a little bit, but he retracted, and he protected Paul, and then when Paul was attacked, he sent Paul on to the governor. And so, but but uh, he's made enemies among the chief priests here. And so they, they, they're bringing charges against Lysias. He, he took him by great violence. When it was their violence that Lysias stopped. They were trying to kill mob, Paul in the midst of a mob. So, and then the Jews assented to everything that Tertullus says. But then we get Paul's witness. And we, one, thing I wanted to, one more thing I wanted to say about the, the charges and, what, and Tertullus's explanation is that they are pretty arrogant here. Um, They're saying, by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. And yet, we've seen Paul ably defend himself against the charges. It's not a a clean-cut case like that. In fact, it's it's far more uh, nuanced. And Paul's going to keep bringing things back into areas that they don't want to go to. He's going to call them back to face the truth of, of the resurrection. And that's, and that's what we see. That's the, the, the essence of Paul's defense. So we start with Paul's defense. And he's bold, he's brings, he brings grace, and he bring, brings truth. And he starts with an introduction, verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Interesting, Paul is... He's not flattering, Felix, but he is respectful. 
I know that you you have genuine authority. You've been here for years, and uh, and Paul shows his faith. Uh, Jesus had appeared to Paul in Jerusalem and, and said, "Be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer. As you've witnessed me here in Jerusalem, so you shall witness witness me in Rome." And here Paul verbally assents to his faith. He says, "I the more cheerfully answer for myself." He says, you have the authority, therefore I am happy to speak to you. Verse 11 and 12 and 13. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So his first defense is that, it's not even possible that the charges that they're bringing are true. I wasn't even there long enough to do what they're accusing me of. The second, so that so he answers he answers the first charge that he was a troublemaker. He says, "No, I wasn't a troublemaker. I wasn't rabble rousing. I wasn't fighting. I wasn't stirring up a mob." The second charge is that he was a leader of the Nazarenes, and he owns it. He says, uh, "Verse 14, 14 to 16." But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call it a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. So he grants the second charge. He says, yes, I'm a leader of what they call a sect, the Nazarenes. But he clarifies that that is not, that's not a charge that, that brings with it any weight. It's, it shouldn't be a charge. It's, it's, it, what's wrong with that, he's saying? It's the gospel. He says, I believe the law and the God. I believe the law. I believe the, 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 the promises of our fathers. And Paul, in this, is a one-note instrument. He doesn't. He, he's, he always goes back to this. He always goes back to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and his witness is a promise of a free conscience before God and men. He has nothing to feel guilty for. There's nothing. He says, "Why am I here? This doesn't make any sense." And the final charge that was brought against him is a lie. Verses 17 through 19. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. Neither with a mob nor with tumult. And they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. So he's saying that third charge that I was profaning the temple is a lie. And he brings to, to, to light the fact that the, the people who brought that charge against him originally, the Jews from Asia, aren't even here to bring the charges. And those Jews were pretty smart in that, in that they're escaping the consequences of perjury. And so Paul then finishes up his defense with a challenge, verses 20 and 21. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So he's saying, bring on the truth. Bring on the challenge. He's like, this is the only thing that they might find fault with me, which was true nonetheless. But he used the divisions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees to divide his accusers in Jerusalem. And so that's the only thing that he thinks they might have any grounding to hold him on. So he deserves freedom, and he goes back to the resurrection. And he always says, he says, this is, and this is what he tells us in his letters, too. He says, I, re I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified to be for you. That's what he tells the Corinthians. I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified before you. Well, don't you see that that's exactly what he's doing here? He's, he's brought up all the charges, either tossed them out or owned them, but he's saying that what this is all about is the gospel. Concerning the resurrection 
of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. He did bring that statement up. And it is the reason that he is here before this court. Because these men have refused to accept the truth of Jesus Christ. So what does Felix do with this? Uh, it's interesting. This is surprising. We read verse, verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. That's interesting. <laughs> Felix knows more about the way. He, Felix has heard of the Christian doctrine. But he's, he doesn't want to be put on the spot. He doesn't want to make a choice or have, it, have make a decision. Christianity at this point hasn't been outlawed in Israel. It's been attacked by the Jews, but it hasn't been outlawed in Israel or in Rome. It's considered a, uh, a deviation or, 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 or a, a wing of Jewishness. Kind of like there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, and now they're the, the Nazarenes or the Christians. And, and they were all viewed as Jewish in nature, and they all claimed to be Jewish. But Felix, uh, he knows there's, there's something going on here. He doesn't want to be the one who has to make the call on this. So he procrastinates. When Lysias comes down, I will make a decision on your case. But we know that Lysias has already given him counsel on this case. Lysias wrote a letter to Felix that, that was delivered to him when Paul got there. And this is what Lysias says. Claudius Lysias, the most excellent governor of Phoenix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, coming with the troops. I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out what he was accused Cons uh, that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving death or chains. Lysias has already given his advice to Felix. And then he says, and here's why you have those, because they were plotting against him. Lysias has already given his advice. But, Felix procrastinates, and for political reasons, he decides to keep Paul imprisoned. Verse 23. So, uh, sorry. Verse, tw um, yeah, verse 23. Wrong chapter. So he commanded the centurion, this is uh, uh, Felix, he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So this is really also fascinating. For political reasons, he's, he's, he doesn't want to anger the Jews, and that's going to become really explicit in a, in a couple, couple verses. But he locks Paul up, and, we, and we're going to see that, that this imprisonment lasts more than two years in Caesarea. But... The nature of Paul's imprisonment is very, he has a lot of liberty. He has a lot of freedom. He can, he can receive guests. He, he, he can speak. He's, he's not, uh, he's not in, a, in an uncomfortable prison uh, by, by prison standards. He's, he's not free, but he's, his friends uh, or, or those who care for him haven't been uh, kept away from him. And, and in this, we can see that Felix knows that Paul doesn't deserve this. And so he has, a, he has a, a guilty conscience, if you will. So since he's going to keep Paul in prison, he's going to try and make it um, his sentencing be easy. But next we see Paul, in prison, is given an opportunity to continue his witness before Felix. Um, <clears throat> verses 24 and 25. And after some, time, some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. So Paul's given the opportunity to preach the gospel. And Felix 
is afraid. And Felix is afraid, and he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Paul's given an opportunity to preach the gospel. He says, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and what? The judgment to come. It's all about the resurrection. And so when he does this, it scares Felix. He's afraid. He's afraid. And yet, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't capitulate. He doesn't fall down before God. He doesn't break. And we see in this a duality of, of rejection and attraction. He hears and he sees truth. And the truth is beautiful. And he loves that. Because it's undeniable. But at the same time, it's unacceptable to him. Because it means he would have to humble himself. So in his fear, he, he pushes Paul away. He says, oh, I can't handle it anymore right now. Get out. But that sin hardens him. And his indecision turns to greed. He was hoping that Paul would try and buy him off. And, and that Paul would pay him to let him go. And so he keeps coming back, but his conscience and his heart is hardened, and he fails to repent, and his actions result in injustice, an injustice to Paul, and that he leaves him locked up for years. But this being the case, Paul, Paul can make lemonade out of lemons. Paul stays faithful in proclaiming the gospel repeatedly in high places. Over and over again, he's given the opportunity to give the gospel to Festus, I mean to, to, to Felix. And we're, as we're going to see in the coming chapters, he's, he's going to be able to give the gospel to, to Festus, the next governor. Um, he was, and at the same time, he was protected from the Jews, his enemies. And he was able to minister to the church in Caesarea. He, uh, it's believed that he wrote the book of Philippians during this, this jail sentence. And, uh, and perhaps some other, some other epistles. So, so in conclusion, what can we learn from this story? Well, first we need to learn to read the story. Recognize the heroes and the villains. So don't be like the villains. Don't be like the Jews. And don't be like Felix. Don't do the same things to others. The Jews were quick to accuse. They were smart and subtle. But they were evil. They were self-serving. They attacked God's truth. They denied it. Felix failed to divide the truth. He failed to protect the innocent, and he failed to, to vindicate the righteous. So instead of that, be like Paul. And interesting, be like Lysias. Lysias protected Paul. Now, don't, don't be an unbeliever. But, but even among unbelievers, there's, there's, there's a hierarchy of, of, of wicked and evil. There's greater condemnation. Look at how Paul ministers in the high places. He's got wicked opponents, fancy lawyers, crooked politicians. He speaks the truth. He doesn't back off. We should not fear the weapons of the world. Paul stays faithful in the difficulty. His focus remains on Jesus, on serving him, where he has placed him. On the witness stand, Paul proclaims the resurrection. Jesus is our defender, and Jesus is our deliverer. Point to Jesus. Speak truth. And this does result in Paul's incarceration for two years, but it doesn't cause despair, because God is still using Paul. All of God's chess pieces, if you will, are effective, even when it looks like they're, they're like a pawn that's been stuck 
corner. Can't get out of there. They're all useful. They're all doing God's, God's purpose, and God's going to win the game. And this is hope for the weak. This is hope for the infirmed. This is hope for the aged. This is hope for people who are stuck, stuck in life. I mean, think about Paul. He's stuck there in jail, and he's got a heart. I mean, he's got a giant heart. He wants to save the world. Read, read his letters. He prays always, every day, for everybody. He's got a giant heart, and now he's stuck in a prison cell. I mean, we, he, he yearns to, 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 to give peace and love to God's people. And who are God's people? Well, he opens his eyes and says, you are God's people. He made you. You belong to him. He loves everyone around him. We've seen him convert his prisoners and his, 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 his jailkeepers. He, he knows that God can forgive the greatest of sinners because he hated God and he hated the church and God stopped him and changed him. And he's proclaiming that news that saved him. His heart is ginormous. And he's locked in this prison cell in, in Caesarea. He doesn't stop it. He continues going on. That's hope for those of us who feel locked in. Stuck in a job, stuck in a place, away from family or friends or uh, just under burdens. God's, God owns your situation. And if you turn to him in faith, he's using you for his will and it's good. This, God gives us opportunities. When, when we have our greatest trials, it's really our greatest opportunities to show faith. When it's the hardest, that's when you can really prove to God that you love Him. Because you're looking to Him when it's the hardest. So it's an opportunity for Paul. It's an opportunity for the church to minister to Paul. When you're in need, when you're stuck, when you need help... That's an opportunity for the body of Christ to show love to you. Paul was, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. He stopped in Caesarea, the church in Caesarea, and they begged him not to go because of the prophecies that says, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem. You're going to be suffering in Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm not ready to be bound, but even to die for the sake of the gospel. But now look at this. They get two years with the Apostle Paul under an easy imprisonment so they can see him and he can minister to them and teach to them. And they can minister to him. And they can bring him food and comfort, fellowship, news, friendship. This was freedom for Paul. Think about that. Paul was set free to do things that he wouldn't have been able to do had he been engaged elsewhere. He was set free to write epistles. He was set free to meditate on his Lord and on the scriptures. He was given time to pray. Moreover, remember that when God's men are put on trial... This is, the, this is the message of Acts. When God's men are put on trial, God is furthering the gospel. It is the court that brings Christians up for the sake of the gospel that is being put on the dock. The court is being taken to task. Now the Sanhedrin has fallen short of the mark at least four times so far in the book. It happened early on with Peter and John, twice in a row. Happened with Stephen. Happened with Paul in Jerusalem just before he came here. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court. They proved their unfaithfulness. They established their guiltiness. And they vindicated God's judgment on Jerusalem. But it's not for lack of witness. God gave them multiple opportunities to see and hear the gospel. We see other courts brought to trial by the gospel. Peter stood before Herod, 
And then God judged Herod shortly after and struck him with worms coming out of his bowels. Because he, 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 he spoke and he, and he took on the glory of God for himself. And God judged him in front of the nation. And made him a plight. The Jews brought Paul before their own courts and also brought charges before Gentiles and, and Gentile rulers against Paul throughout his ministry during his missionary journeys. And the gospel continually is proclaimed and defended. Paul himself stood before the Areopagus and in, in Athens and before the consuls and proconsuls in Asia Minor and Greece. Here Paul stands before Felix, the governor of Israel. And, as the text indicates, Felix was then shortly after succeeded by Festus. And what we know from history is that Felix wasn't such a great guy. But Paul was. That's what we also know from history. That's a witness of the gospel. Whose side are you on? And, and whatever the court of the day decides is not the determiner of ultimate truth. It's God in heaven who is. He's the one who's writing the story. And all this, the story of Acts, is abundantly conclusive in that Jesus remains Lord over heaven and earth, and his victory over evil is inexorable. It cannot be stopped. It will happen. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And how that happens is also gloriously the story of Acts. It comes through the faithfulness of the saints, through their humility, and through their sacrifice. How does, how does the victory of Christ establish? It's through Simple, honest, faithful, humble men doing what he tells them to do. As we read in our, our New Testament text this morning, it says, Jesus said, uh, you know, when you get to me and, and, and you've done what you're, in, what you're supposed to do, you're just going to say, I only did my duty. And every one of us, even the greatest saint who ever lives, knows how unworthy they are. And how dependent on the cross, on Jesus Christ, for any good that's in their life. If they, did, if they did great works on the earth, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, not themselves. Because of themselves, they would be just like Festus, or, or just like Felix, or just like the Jews. Because we're all sinners. When the resurrection is proclaimed, the gospel achieves God's purposes. And what is the gospel? Well, the first thing the gospel does is it, it is the law that brings sinners face to face with their need for grace and salvation. Paul's defense is that he believes all the law and the prophets. That's his defense. Well, I believe what God told me in the Bible. That, that's, that's why things are the way they are. Because God told me that's the way they are. I believe that. But when he explains it, when he, when he is given the opportunity to speak the truth of what the law and the prophets say, that is when Felix gets afraid. It's when, all of a sudden, the light comes on, and it's like, oh... Uh, God is in charge. And, he, and He's holy. And I owe my existence and my life and my gratitude and every blessing that I have to Him. And I will answer to Him, ultimately, at the end of my life. For all eternity. And, and, and our pro, I mean, as unbelievers, as people who don't believe this, people who don't accept this, they try and reason, rationalize it. They try and reason it away. They say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm all right. I'm pretty nice. People kind of like me. But that's not the standard. 
God's holy law is the standard. And the breaking of any, any one of his laws, the failure to love to the extent that God demands us to love is a sin. It's called a sin of omission. You didn't do it. And God is justified in condemning us for even that kind of sin. But all of us are guilty of grosser sins than that. Heinous sins. Hating our brothers. Being mean. Vindictive. Selfish. Greed. Stealing. Lying. Cheating. We're petty. Interestingly, in Paul's defense before Felix, he's united the gospel for the Jews with the gospel for the Gentiles. And he can do this in this court. Like when he goes to the Areopagus, he talks about God the Creator and God sending a man who came back from the dead. What? Back from the dead? That's crazy! When he said that, that's when the Areopagus says, uh, come back another day. We want to hear more about this later. Can't wrap our heads around that one. That's the gospel for the Gentiles. God became a man and told men how we are supposed to live. And how we're supposed to live is we're supposed to die. Humble yourself before God. And that's powerful. And it converts. The gospel for the Jews, who know how holy God is and how weak they are and how they need the sacrificial system to, to make themselves right, the gospel for the Jews is that Jesus fulfilled all of that. And before Felix, Paul gets to say, well, the Jews are attacking me before a Gentile ruler. So I get to say both that I believe the law and Jesus it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I stand before you today. This is the witness that every man must face if we are going to be faithful Christians. We need to be like Paul. That means we need to speak gospel truth because we love our brother. Paul's not being vindictive when he tells people they're sinners. He's loving them. He's saying, you're sinners, but there's an answer to that. Jesus died for you. That's good news. And if we are going to be faithful Christians, we need to proclaim that. Every man needs to hear that good news. And we need to go out of our way to explain it to them in a way that they can understand it. Jesus did. He became a man so we can understand it. When we teach our little kids, we need to talk to them about Jesus in a way that they can understand it. And sometimes that just means, you know, changing their diapers and wiping their nose. God loves us where we're at. He comes down to us where we're at. The message of faithful Christians is that the Trinitarian, eternal God of the Bible and of creation, the Christian God, is real. And he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ and in his word, the book of Jesus Christ. And men are guilty before him. But, gloriously, but... In Jesus Christ and in humility and faith, God gives, he freely gives salvation to men and he offers peace to us and eternal life. This is good news, it's the gospel, and it's the constitution of a new world order. It's in Daniel, the dream of Daniel with, with the, 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 the statue and then the small rock that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. There were representations of new kingdoms, different kingdoms, the gold, the silver, all different kingdoms, different governments, if you will. Isaiah says the government will be upon his shoulder. Jesus will rule. And the new constitution of Jesus' rule is the gospel. 
because Jesus is Lord, because he was raised from the dead and God he ascended into heaven, and because all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. All authority. It's not just his authority here in the church, or, or in, in this building, or in our private lives, or in our living rooms. All authority. Jesus tells Pilate, the governor of the land, you would have no authority unless it were given. It, all authority is derived, and it's derived from God. But after the resurrection, it's derived from God and Jesus Christ. All authority belongs to him. We Christians, his servants, are already vindicated, and his work is already accomplished, and we participate in his glory by doing, submitting, by being obedient, by actually doing his works by the power of his Holy Spirit. He gives us the, the gift of his Spirit that we may do what he wants us to do. And in his story, it frequently looks like we're, we're, we're fighting against a stacked deck. Uh, the world that we live in is, is filled with sinners. But when we see that stacked deck, it's really an opportunity in disguise. It's God's opportunity to prove yet again that He is the God who saves. And the ultimate glorious judge who makes every wrong right and establishes justice for all eternity. And when we see that, when He opens our eyes to that, all we're left with at the end of the day, the only thing we can do is glorify Him. That's what we're supposed to do. We need to praise Him. He is the God of mercy, of grace, and glory. We need to praise Him. And that is why Paul regularly ends up singing hymns in his epistles. If you read through the epistles, you're reading along, and all of a sudden he starts going off, and it's this really poetic language all of a sudden. It's glorious and beautiful. And, and it's a hymn. That's what it is. It's because when the truth hits you square between the eyes, it's like, bam, I'm knocked over. I need to praise God. And so I'm going to leave you with a couple of these glorious hymns from the book of Romans. Romans 8. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. And he concludes the book with another one. Now to him who is able... To establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandments of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray.
and repentance for our sin and guilt that caused his suffering. The second great reality that this meal signifies is the coming glory of our Lord, the establishment of his kingdom over all the earth, and the ultimate peace that is heaven above. In this reality, we see that we are pilgrims on a pilgrimage. We are passing through this world, and our eyes and our hearts must be set on Jesus in heaven and in the future. This is hope because we know he is in control. And when we face evil here and now, when we look death in the eye, or persecutors, or when we engage in a death grip with sin in our own hearts, we know that Jesus came to take these enemies to task. He has dealt with them on the cross, and we are free to follow him. This meal then gives us cause to rejoice. We are new men. Reborn by grace through faith. This takes place for all baptized members of the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign grace of God. And that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.